When we think of MRIs, magnetic resonance imaging, that is, we might think of body scans, but functional brain imaging, or fMRI, which scans the brain and can even decode people's thoughts, perception, and imagination, has been at the forefront of research by Professor Marvin Chun, the Yale University psychology and neuroscience academic, who we have the great pleasure of inviting on the show today. Good morning to you, and thank you very much for taking the time. Uh, good morning. I'm very pleased to be here. Interestingly, as one of the recipients of this year's Hoam Prize, an annual award presented to Koreans who have made outstanding contributions to the development of science and and culture and enhancement of the the welfare of mankind, uh, also being the first Asian American to become the dean of Yale College, does this all add pressure to your work, or does it spur you on? Um, not pressure. I, I feel very lucky uh, and grateful uh, to have the opportunities that many people have given to me. So can you tell us a bit more about your research, for example, into fMRI, focusing on these images of what our brains are doing? Yeah, thank you. Um, you gave an excellent introduction and summary, uh, but fundamentally uh, we're interested in uh, using fMRI to understand the brain's code. Uh, we want to understand how it works. We want to be able to read it out. Uh, and the goal um, is to uh, basically understand um, the link between brain activity and human behavior with the uh, long-term goal of uh, improving it and making lives better. So what are some major examples of, of the research? Um, this brain fingerprints, for example, which sounds like it's almost intuitive <laughs> for the uh, secular you. person. Uh, I think people are quite familiar with uh, the genome and how everyone has a unique uh, genetic foot, uh, fingerprint. And basically, we're doing something that's an analogy of that, uh, except that we're using fMRI to quantify um, how people's brains are different from each other. And uh, we've uh, discovered and reported that uh, the way that people's brains differ also correlates uh, with uh, their differences in behavior. Uh, so, for example, just like uh, differences in the genome will predict differences in height or eye color or hair color, uh, we found that differences in the brain fingerprint, uh, which is more formally called the brain connectome, uh, correlates and predicts differences in human behavior, such as intelligence, uh, the ability to attend, uh, personality, and other uh, kinds of uh, traits. How might this play into areas of research, for example, that have shown how prayer and meditation affects the brain structure and, and chemistry and, in other words, giving people hope that they can actually alter some of the negative aspects of their own brain fingerprint? Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's directly relevant, and I, I really I love that example you provided. Um, right now, uh, people work hard to uh, improve their concentration, improve their focus, and also improve their well-being. Um, however, there have not been good ways to measure uh, how focused a person is uh, or how well they are uh, in terms of, let's say, uh, well-being or satisfaction or happiness. So the long-term hope of this area of research uh, is to be able to quantify uh, these different states. So when someone says, I feel focused, uh, we want to be able to put a number on that, which will allow us to better measure uh, whether uh, meditation or other kinds of good practices are helping uh, one's mind's uh, state. Uh, also, in a clinical area, um, I think the uh, big promise and uh, hope for this area of research uh, is that it will uh, be useful for uh, psychiatrists in clinical settings. 
Uh, so, for example, right now, there's not good ways to quantify how depressed a person is or how anxious a person may feel, um, but the hope is that using brain scanning, we should be able to quantify uh, these different mental illnesses. Uh, and if you can quantify something better and if you can measure it better, uh, that will allow us to uh, find better treatments uh, for these conditions as well. And just to make it clear to anyone who might have their own concerns about that, this is not uh, like a CT scan. There's nothing harmful at all about MRI imaging. Uh, that's correct. Uh, it's been around for several decades, and as long as there's no metal in the body, uh, it is safe uh, for repeated use. The um, thing I also wanted to ask you at this point, even though the research is ongoing, for people who might want to seek immediate takeaways, some of the newspaper headlines have suggested even just a few minutes a day of a particular activity could be enough to change your brain structure. Does that back up what you've seen yourself? Um, I, I think um, uh, definitely um, one of the most important properties of all human brains is that it's a very powerful learning device. Uh, so one could say that your brain is uh, learning and changing all the time. Uh, this is, uh, you know, the hallmark of human intelligence. Uh, now, whether it leads to deep structural changes in the brain uh, will typically uh, require uh, more sustained long-term training uh, or engagement in an activity. Um, but yes, uh, both in the short term and in the long term, um, engaging in an activity training uh, will alter the brain. And one more question, which might also seem slightly off the beaten track, but I'm very curious. The link between prayer and meditation that we mentioned before, for example, uh, does it make you wonder if there is this unquantifiable aspect, either of the brain or of the mind, that you're never going to be able to quite square up with your research? Um, yes, I do uh, engage in my research in it with a humble and modest attitude in that I, I, I don't think that science will provide uh, answers to everything about uh, the brain, the mind, and, and most importantly, what makes us uh, human uh, beings, what makes us spiritual beings. Uh, however, um, with regards to uh, meditation and prayer, uh, we can use science to quantify the practical benefits uh, of those practices uh, and it is well known uh, and pretty uh, now uncontroversial that uh, meditation and prayer will help reduce uh, anxiety uh, and leads to better focus. The minds that we have may yet be fairly mysterious, but we are still at the infant stage of developing our own creations could become something rather helpful or something a bit more Frankenstein-esque. Artificial intelligence is what I'm referring to. Uh, how is your work potentially linked to the way in which we might create artificial intelligence? Uh, thank you. Yes, I think it's very important uh, to understand the relationship between neuroscience and artificial intelligence. One thing I like to say when I give talks about this topic uh, is that before artificial intelligence and better than artificial intelligence uh, is uh, the existence of human intelligence. Uh, and before uh, computers and better than computers, uh, you know, for a long time, human brains have evolved to uh, produce the remarkable achievements that people are capable of, of doing. And so in order to create a better artificial intelligence, we need to first understand human intelligence uh, and how the human brain gives rise uh, to such intelligence. And um, it's not just me saying this, but I believe that a lot of uh, artificial intelligence researchers uh, also uh, believe that um, understanding human intelligence is an uh, important way to advance uh, artificial intelligence algorithms. 
Uh, one specific example is uh, Demis Asavis, uh, the um, CEO of DeepMind that created AlphaGo, uh, the artificial intelligence system that um, has uh, beat uh, human champions in the game of Go. And Demis specifically talks about how uh, his breakthroughs uh, rested on his understanding and insights from studying neuroscience. Is there potential for intelligence, though, to spill over into emotion? In other words, could we have a scenario in the future, or in the fairly near future indeed, where a robot, if we want to call it a robot, whatever kind of device, actually feels anxious or actually feels sympathy? Uh, that, that's a good question. I, I don't know if an artificial intelligence system will feel anxiety, but I do think for artificial intelligence to benefit uh, humankind, it will need to feel uh, empathy. In human intelligence, um, of course, there's kind of like the rational kind of thinking, and then there's kind of the more emotional type of thinking. And uh, it's really both that makes us uh, such uh, special people and uh, allows us to do amazing things, especially creative acts uh, and caring for other people. So I think if we want artificial intelligence to benefit uh, humankind, uh, it will need to incorporate emotion and empathy. Is there a concern of abuse, though, of this technology, um, the, the, the dystopian fear that yeah. sci-fi movies and novels have been raising for decades? I think, you know, there, I think there is a potential for abuse uh, and a need for caution for any technology, uh, as we know, uh, including a lot of social media and Internet uh, technologies. And that's certainly true for artificial intelligence uh, as well. However, I think the day when uh, we, we would be really threatened is far off, uh, so we have plenty of time to uh, prepare and put in uh, safeguards so that uh, the technology doesn't harm us. Yeah, I mean, we could go off on a tangent here and talk about political actors around the world who might have different views and how challenging it might be to put a bottle on this technology. But as you say, uh, it's probably a conversation that will have to intensify a little bit further down the road. And if there's someone who, who uses artificial intelligence for evil means, uh, of course, there are good actors who can use the same uh, kind of artificial intelligence to combat uh, those evil forces. So I think, uh, I think it'll be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, we've gone from the sort of Westworld territory in my mind to <laughs> almost Iron Man. Um, <laughs> but I'd like to also ask you about the human possibilities a little bit further. Uh, we talked before sure. about some of the you know, potential mental illness or even just mental benefits of, uh, of the way we use our brains. But there are some very physical conditions like uh, Alzheimer's disease, the collection of protein in the brain. Could we be using this research to either consider partial transplants or therapeutic support that would help deal with some of these very challenging conditions that affect uh, the brain? Uh, yeah. That's, so uh, the area of neuroscience will definitely be uh, the field of science that uh, will lead to breakthroughs in in diagnosing and treating uh, and reversing the very harmful effects of dementia and Alzheimer's disease. Um, my own work is not involved in treatment per se, um, but we did publish a paper showing that we can use our methods uh, to predict and quantify how impaired individuals are uh, when they are suffering from Alzheimer's disease. And the um, one future direction uh, is to use our technologies to predict uh, the onset of uh, Alzheimer's disease and dementia and various other kinds of brain disorders, uh, even before the cognitive symptoms uh, start to show. Uh, so, and in addition, if we couple that with 
uh, work that other neuroscientists are doing, uh, I do believe that uh, researchers and, and doctors will be able to uh, find treatments for uh, this devastating disease. Yeah, because we're at that level with a few other very challenging diseases mm-hmm. as well. This, this ability to know what terrible things could happen, um, for example, with the spread of cancer or indeed, as you say, the very early development of something like Alzheimer's. And unfortunately for patients right now, it might not feel very comforting to think that, well, they know what's going to happen, but they don't necessarily have the means to stop it. In, in your experience, what is the latency between those things? Once you know how things are going to happen, is the treatment fairly shortcoming? Uh, so, so currently, as you know, there is no uh, strong treatment for reversing uh, and, and even significantly slowing down uh, Alzheimer's disease. It's, it's certainly one of the biggest area of, areas of uh, uh, research, uh, especially in pharmaceutical companies. Um, and uh, yes, I, I do think that uh, knowing that something will onset um, is not going to be very helpful unless we actually have treatments uh, for slowing it down and, and for treating it. Uh, so we have to make sure to, uh, that the treatments keep pace with our abilities to uh, measure and predict uh, the onset of, of these uh, diseases. Um, Alzheimer's is still uh, you know, a very difficult area of research uh, and requires uh, more uh, breakthroughs. Uh, there is autism, where early detection can uh, help with providing uh, clinicians and families with opportunities to intervene uh, to help lessen the severity of uh, the onset of autism. And, um, and this is another area where I hope that uh, brain imaging will be useful. Uh, so to say that more simply, a one-year-old um, a two-year-old, it's hard to determine from their behavior whether they will develop autism or not or have autism or not. But if we can use brain scanning uh, to predict uh, that onset, uh, then there are some behavioral interventions uh, that you can do to alleviate the symptoms. Dr. Chun, it's been a pleasure to hear from you. Great to know there are some good actors out there trying to improve our world through a very mysterious area of research. Uh, and good luck for the future. Oh, thank you so much.